Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Melissa Colston and Michael Cunningham. Hello. Hey there. On this episode, we're gearing up for Comic Surge and Halloween with some comics, graphic novels, and scary stories. For those of you who don't know about Comic Surge, it's an annual free comic con for all ages that takes place right here at JCPL. This year's Comic Surge is happening on Saturday, October 12th from 10 a.m. until 4.30 p.m. And we hope you'll join us in celebrating comics, graphic novels, and geek-tastic pop culture. So I know you've worked during Comic Surge before, have you, Melissa? I have not had that pleasure. (laughs) It is quite a day. Yes. There's a lot of people. A lot of people, a lot of fun stuff going on. If you're planning on studying that day, don't do it Mm. here. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you want to hang out with Darth Vader and... Iron Man. And yeah, we never quite know exactly who's going to show up, but um, they have appeared in the past, and there's always a chance that they will come again. And didn't you dress up as... Yes, I was a Obi-Wan Kenobi last year. <laughs> yes. And uh, who else? We have Batman, Spider-Man, and I, think, I know we'll have a couple return appearances this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have got lots of exciting things, so um, be sure to join us. And I think um, we're going to start off with our comic books and graphic novels. Michael, you want to get us started? Sure. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that I decided to stick with the horror theme for my graphic novel recommendation, (laughs) Moonshine by Brian Azzarello and illustrated by Eduardo Rizzo, especially since it's about moonshining werewolves. (laughs) What a combination. (laughs) I know. There's no way I couldn't pass this up. Uh, In 1929, during Prohibition, New York mob boss Joe the Boss Mazzaria sends Lou Perillo, our smart-mouthed alcoholic protagonist, to Spine Ridge, West Virginia, to offer Hiram Holt, the proud leader of a bootlegging empire, an offer he can't refuse. Hiram Holt makes some of the best moonshine the boss has ever tasted and wants him to make it exclusively for him. So Hiram isn't interested, and things naturally escalate into bloody violence. Unknown to the mob, Holt has a couple werewolves that help protect his stills. And so Lou gets caught in the middle. He tries to flee, but ends up getting captured by the Holt clan as he's leaving town and gets himself turned into a werewolf. The mob, however, apparently experiencing something like this before, causing reinforcements, the infamous monster hunter known only as the hunter. So I read the first two volumes of this uh, graphic novel story. Hopefully there will be a third. From what I could tell from the Image Comics website, it looks like the next two issues will be published sometime in November and December. Um, Overall, I thought the artwork really complemented the writing. I was hoping that there would be some deeper exploration of the exploitation the Appalachia region has faced over the years. It seemed like a really good opportunity to kind of dig into that. Um, Maybe we'll factor more in the future issues. Um, But I found it to be a really fun, compelling read. So if you enjoy werewolf films or werewolf novels, this is right up your alley. So a story about werewolves calls for a cocktail called Werewolf's Blood. (laughs) I found the recipe on a website called Cocktails and Comics. 
Um, There's a whole website for... Yes. That's a beautiful thing. I'm so glad to know that exists. Yeah. (laughs) So the recipe calls for bitters, lemon juice, honey, rye whiskey, and Newcastle Werewolf Blood Red Ale and one orange wheel or wedge. When I made this, I used Bullet Rye Whiskey. And since I haven't seen Newcastle Werewolf Blood Red Ale available around here in quite a few years, I substituted it with West Six Amber Ale. Any red or amber ale would work just fine, I think. I thought it was good, but I'm no mixologist. It did remind me a little bit of an old-fashioned with a whole, with an orange and rye whiskey in it. Yeah, sounds good. Beer cocktails can be a little tricky. I know. Because you can't shake them. Nope. <laughs> but you gotta be, the proportions have to be right on. Yeah. So. so I think maybe that's where it was all right for me, but... I've never really done a whole lot of mixology before. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to uh, stretch yourself yep, for try new things. <laughs> yeah. As much as we can count on Michael to go for horror, we can count on me and Carrie to go for other things. <laughs> so my graphic novel is not actually a graphic novel novel it's a graphic memoir and it is called good talk by mira jacob and it's billed like i said as a memoir in conversations and consists of drawings of people in her life that interact through text bubbles all set on top of pictures that are relevant to the conversation so in effect each each page is a collage but the drawings of the people are cutouts and don't change all that much from page to page or scene to scene So I think it makes it very easy to comprehend visually and allows you to focus more of your attention on the text. Mira Jacob is an Indian American writer, and the book tackles a lot of different topics from living in New York during 9-11 to trying to explain racism and bigotry to her son, from marrying into a Jewish family to navigating the world as a person of color and parent of color after the election of Donald Trump. The chapters and conversations are not arranged chronologically. So the arrangement kind of helps set up future events or give context to past events. And her conversations with her son are an emotional thread that runs through the whole book. They provide both levity and gravity, like through her son's nonsensical knock-knock jokes and questions about if the president hates him. Those conversations in particular, I think, are what makes the book powerful. The The combination of silly kid stuff and emotional gut punches. It was a very quick read, And I think it would be a great introduction to graphic works in general because you don't have to study the images too intently to understand what's happening in the story. They help bring the characters and settings to life, but the images are very easy to read and comprehend. It's kind of a sneaky book in that way. Easy and quick to read, but the conversations themselves are packed with meaning in a very concise way. I'd recommend this book for anyone who's into nonfiction graphic works or anyone who isn't so sure about graphic novels but is willing to try. This one is way worth the effort. So Jacob's family is Syrian Christian from Kerala, India, which is a group that traces their origins back to St. Thomas, who is said to have brought Christianity to India in 52 AD. In honor of her family's heritage, pair good talk with the southern Indian version of rice pudding called Pal Payasam. If you want to go full Syrian Christian, track down rice ada or rice flakes, and make the version called Palata Payasan. We'll post links to recipes for both versions on our blog.
The comic series Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang is about four 12-year-old newspaper delivery girls in 1988. The series opens the morning after Halloween in Stony Stream, Ohio. To better deal with still-prowling Halloween pranksters, the girls decide to stick together on their paper routes. They encounter something more serious than pranksters, though, and when they chase the zombie-like creatures into a basement, they witness an apocalyptic explosion. Soon the girls are traveling through time, caught between warring factions, and trying to get back to 1988. I really didn't have any expectations when I started reading this series, so I was completely surprised by the sci-fi on steroids plot full of monsters, time travel, and encounters with the girls' future selves. I really enjoyed it, though, and every time I finished a volume, I found myself anxious to find out what happened next. The 80s details are spot on in both the candy-colored art and the writing, and the story avoids being overly nostalgic. From the opening scene showing one girl's nightmare about Krista McAuliffe to the character's fear of AIDS, this is the 80s that I remember. I also enjoyed the girl's wry and snarky tone. As Esquire magazine said, the series is, quote, pitched somewhere between Stand By Me, Heathers, and the video for Thriller, unquote. If you're too young to get those references, a lot of reviews say it's a good choice for fans of Stranger Things. The paper girls are way too busy fending for their lives to eat anything, even Halloween candy. I recommend eating your childhood favorites in their honor. An informal internet search I conducted said that Nerds, Sour Patch Kids, and Skittles were some of the most popular candies in the 80s. Those are the kind of candies I would have happily traded for a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. What about you guys? What were, what are, were your favorite candies when you were kids same Reese's peanut butter cups are my favorites <laughs> yeah it's hard I, to beat that. I am a fan of nerds there's something about like just having chipmunk cheek full <laughs> mouth of nerds and like how it tears up your mouth but also such crunch I don't there's there's apparently I have feelings about nerds I had no idea <laughs> <laughs> peanut butter cups are great too though <laughs> um I, I also read recently that there's talk of an Amazon TV series for Paper Girls, so if you haven't read it, you might want to do that before before the series comes out. The final volume just came out. Um, it's so I, ending. It is ending. I know. Oh, wow. It's sad. Um, so I haven't actually read the final five issues of the comic. Um, I just downloaded them today at lunch from Hoopla. Um, so we'll, we'll keep you posted. Yeah. Since it's October, I decided to pick a novel that involved two of my favorite horror tropes, Halloween and Haunted Houses which is why I chose the 2017 Stoker Award nominee Kill Creek by Scott Thomas. In 1859, a massive farmhouse is built on the banks of the now dried-up Kill Creek in the Kansas Prairie and is rumored to be haunted. It was the site of a double murder shortly after it was built, spurring chilling ghost stories. For more than 100 years, no owner can make it longer than a year living there until the reclusive Finch sisters buy it in the 1970s and spend over two decades in the house. 
One sister even invites a parapsychologist to spend the weekend to write a book describing all the horrifying hauntings, a la the Amityville Horror. Then there's the third floor bedroom that's been mysteriously bricked up. So after sitting empty for almost 20 years, an internet mogul named Justin Wainwright and his assistant-slash-lover Kate plan a publicity stunt inviting the top four horror authors to spend Halloween night at the Kill Creek House to interview them while streaming it live on his website, Rightwire. Once there, something that dogs them wanting them to become part of the house's notorious history. So one of the first things I noticed is that each writer represents a different subgenre of horror. You have Sebastian Cole, an older man who has an extremely successful writing career, think Stephen King or Dean Koontz. There's Daniel Slaughter, who writes a popular series of young adult horror, like an R.L. Stein or Christopher Pike type. And then there's T.C. Moore, who represents the splatterpunk or extreme horror subgenre, almost like a Clive Barker. Splatterpunk? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never heard you that never term. heard splatterpunk? Never heard that. <laughs> so this is kind of a meta horror novel. Yeah, there is. You kind of get a lot of insight into publishing and writing and getting through writer's block and then... Like our, la- like our last character, um, our main protagonist, Sam McGarver, who kind of represents a modern-day horror writer who just he's trying to fight through writer's block, and you know his publisher's kind of ready to drop him and not <laughs> sure what to do. Mm-hmm. He's lost his wife. <laughs> um, Got a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Thomas, you know, he really did a great job creating the creating and developing fully realized characters. Um, I didn't care much for T.C. Moore starting out, but at the end, she was my favorite character. Um, the suspense and tension and dread are just ratcheted up throughout the entire book, especially in the third part where the real horror fun really gets going. Also, fair warning, Thomas does not shy away from the horror either. He shows you everything in a few scenes were even shocking to me. Um, it's also quite clear he's a huge horror fan. Throughout, there are not The Shining the Amityville Horror, The Haunting of Hill House, and even The Ruins. So if you've enjoyed these books and or movies, you should definitely check this book out. Um, so I paired this with one of my favorite things about fall and the Halloween season, Schlafly's Pumpkin Ale. This is one of the best pumpkin beers out there. It's brewed with fresh pumpkin, and it's perfectly balanced with a nice malt bat bone, so you know you're still drinking a beer. <laughs> and that, and and not not, a, not a pumpkin latte. <laughs> yes, you're not drinking a PSL. Um, but yeah, it still has all the notes of cinnamon, nutmeg, clove, so it's still kind of got that pumpkin pie taste, but not overly so like some mm-hmm. of the other ones out there. That's important. Yes, it I is. I know. Like Pumpkin by Southern Tier is just really intense. <laughs> Haven't really had sweet. It. <laughs> well, good to know what to look out for now. If I'm looking for a pumpkin beer. Yep. I usually just go straight Oktoberfest because they're pretty safe for fall mm-hmm. if yeah. I'm getting a beer. But definitely Schlafly's best up there. So generally, I'm not a huge fan of scary stories, but this one definitely reeled me in. It is The Grace Year by Kim Liggett. And I think Either my barometer for what qualifies as horror is a little skewed, or this is a thriller with elements of horror. Either way, I was definitely nervous, but I don't think I was terrified or, like, grossed out or anything. 
but I did have to stop reading it before I went to bed because I'd get too anxious and have to force myself to stop reading so I could get some sleep. Otherwise, I would just keep reading and reading and never go to bed. Yeah, that's one of the issues I have with very <laughs> suspenseful <laughs> books. Is, yeah, it wasn't that I was, like, scared or, I don't know. It was just the anxiety of wanting to know what was going to happen mm-hmm. next. Anyway, the grace year follows Tierney James as she sets out for her grace year, which is a year-long period in which all of the 16-year-old girls in her town are sent away to live together, completely isolated from their community, and release their magic into the wild. If and when they return, they are considered purified and ready to be married. Once Tierney's group arrives at the island enclosure where they will live for the next year all on their own, things quickly turn sinister and many of the girls won't make it back to their families and future husbands. The book reminded me a lot of one of the David Tennant episodes of Doctor Who called Midnight that definitely freaked me out and still haunts me to this day to the point that I'm talking about it however many years after I first watched it. Um, Both Midnight and The Grace Year take a look at how horrible people can be to one another and at the power of suggestion, especially when people are scared. Because ultimately, the reason these girls are sent away to quote-unquote release their magic is because of the extremely patriarchal community that they live in and the men that fear the power women have to the point that they are routinely executed and ritually hazed when they reach, reach 16 years old. It's pretty horrifying. The book is being billed as similar to The Handmaid's Tale and The Power, and lots of folks on Goodreads have compared it to The Hunger Games and Lord of the Flies, but all women. And I think that also fits the bill pretty well, that combination of Lord of the Flies, um, that, like, kill-or-be-killed kind of Hunger Games feel, and also the the patriarchy of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, girls and, and women and people in general can be truly awful to each other, so there's a lot about this book, book that feels real enough to make me nervous. I didn't love the romantic aspects, but they were brief enough, and I was all in enough by that point that I didn't really care. There isn't a ton of angst, which I appreciate in a YA novel, and there was enough suspense and not too much gore to keep me plowing through the book. As for what to pair with the Grace Year, the day that Tierney is set to depart for her Grace Year, her mother brings her a hearty breakfast of sausages, eggs, biscuits, and stewed apples. Since it's finally getting on towards fall here in central Kentucky, someday, any day, it'll arrive, (laughs) Uh, stewed apples seems like the pairing for this book. I went looking for a stewed apples recipe and found several tempting recipes in Ripe by Nigel Slater, but the early autumn apples on hot toast recipe sounds absolutely incredible, and I completely abandoned all notions of stewed apples. It essentially calls for cooking sliced apples, raisins, cinnamon, butter, and sugar down until the apples are cooked and the sugar and butter have turned into caramel. All of that goes on top of fresh toast, and I'd suggest a mug of hot tea to make it the coziest, most autumnal meal ever. Mm. That's good. I'm definitely ready for some cozy autumnal weather. Same. <laughs> yes. You should definitely take a look at that book. I, every recipe, I was like, that sounds incredible. That sounds even better. Yeah. But I have looked at that book, but apparently not close enough. Maybe it's just the apple <laughs> section. I didn't get much past that, but it's a giant cookbook just about fruit. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. 
Excellent. Thanks. last book is Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. This novella was originally published in 1983, but was rediscovered and reissued by New Directions in 2017. The plot is very similar to the 2017 horror movie The Shape of Water. In fact, some people have speculated that Guillermo del Toro based his plot on Mrs. Caliban, though the author never took him to court over it. The main character, Dorothy, is a bored, lonely housewife grieving for a son who died during a routine appendectomy. She has also recently lost a baby, and her husband, Fred, is having an affair. Early on in the story, Dorothy's reliability comes into question when we learn that she sometimes hears special announcements on the radio that are broadcast just to her, as when a woman's voice tells her during a cake mix commercial, quote, don't worry, Dorothy. You'll have another baby, all right. It's guaranteed. Unquote. When she hears an announcement that Aquarius the Monster Man has escaped after killing his keepers at the Jefferson Institute for Oceanographic Research, she wonders if it's another of her special announcements. But soon after the announcement, Aquarius the Monster Man quote, a gigantic six-foot-seven-inch frog-like creature, unquote, walks into her kitchen while she's making dinner for Fred and his associate and asks for her help. Dorothy immediately installs Larry, the name he prefers, since he has trouble pronouncing Aquarius, in her spare room, unbeknownst to Fred. By day, Larry watches TV, eats fruits and vegetables, he's especially fond of avocados, and makes love to Dorothy. By night, he sometimes goes out driving by himself, and other times he and Dorothy go swimming or walking in the museum gardens. Dorothy is terrified that someone will see him, but Larry is confident in his disguise of wigs and makeup. Like Dorothy, Larry is wounded and misunderstood. Yes, he has killed people, but only after suffering abuse and mistreatment. Peel back Mrs. Caliban's B-movie creature feature plot, and you'll find complex social satire. Read one way, it's a fable along the lines of Beauty and the Beast. Read another, you might wonder if Dorothy has imagined the entire thing. It's a quick, dialogue-heavy read that sometimes feels more like a play than a novella. It's also quite funny. I often found myself laughing at the sheer ridiculousness of Dorothy and Larry's situation. While the plot twists at the end should satisfy horror fans, it's not so scary that you can't read it before bed. Mrs. Caliban gave me the perfect excuse to try a recipe I've had bookmarked for a while, avocado and lemon zest spaghetti from Anna Jones's book, A Modern Way to Eat. One of the first meals Dorothy makes for Larry is spaghetti with margarine and herbs. This recipe adds garlic, lemon, capers, Larry's favorite avocados, and swaps out the margarine for olive oil. Since most of the ingredients are pantry staples, it's the perfect meal to whip up when a frogman drops in unexpectedly.
Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We produce our podcast in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. You can find out more on our website at jesspublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.